Amen. You guys can be seated. All right. Hey, well, we are finishing up the final week of this series that we've been calling Beyond Belief. Beyond Belief. And uh, one of the things that we have kind of been saying, the reason we're, we're, we named this series what we did, is that a lot of Christians in our day and age, a lot of college students too, they think that when it comes to a relationship with Jesus, that all that has to look like is that they believe in Jesus. And as long as I believe in Jesus, and, and especially if I believe in him and, and that he uh, died for my sins, like if I can believe those things, then I'm good. And whatever else my life looks like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter because I believe in Jesus. But see, Jesus calls us to so much more. And so we've been looking over the past three weeks at what it looks like to live a faith that goes beyond simply believing in God. We looked uh, two weeks ago at King David. And King David taught us that a faith that goes beyond belief is a faith that is hungry for the things of God. Last week, we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we looked at the stand that they took against King Nebuchadnezzar, and we learned that a faith that goes beyond belief, uh, it, it looks different than the world. And tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, one final aspect of a faith that goes beyond belief, and I want to set it up like this. I believe that there are two types of people in this world, two types of people in the world. There are the people who they happen to life. And then there are the people who life happens to them, okay? And both of those people groups are represented here in this room. Here's kind of the distinguishing uh, or, or how these two look different, right? So people who they happen to life, here's kind of what their day might have looked like today. They woke up to an alarm clock, not like the snooze button alarm clock, but like the first one. And it, it was ringing at the time that they set it for the previous night because they were diligent about doing so. Uh, they roll out of bed. The birds are chirping. They make their way to the bathroom to start getting ready for their day. And what do they find? A toothbrush with toothpaste already on it, laid out from the night before. And they then walk into their closet to get dressed. And what do they find? They find an entire outfit all laid out, ready to go from the night before. They make their way down to the kitchen. And they don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about what they're going to eat for breakfast that day because they have basically the same thing every day. So they got this routine. They can do it like in, in no time. They make their breakfast. And then uh, the second alarm clock goes off. And this is not like the, hey, you slept in too long alarm clock. No, this is the alarm clock of it's time to leave to go to class. And that alarm clock, uh, it rings at a precise time that allows them to leave their house accounting for traffic and get to class about five minutes before class begins so that they can get their favorite seat, they can review some study notes, and get ready for the pop quiz that's about to be given. That pop quiz gets given to them, man, they know everything that's on there. They've seen this time and time again. They ace it. That trend goes on until, you know, classes are over, it's lunchtime, and they were so diligent, they packed their lunch. They knew, I'm going to get hungry, and I'm going to get hungry around this time, and this is what I would like. So I built in some time in my morning schedule to bring a lunch alongside of uh, the rest of the, my stuff that day. Uh, so they, they eat their lunch, and maybe they go hang out with their friends, but then they go, oh, well, it's Thursday. It's 
time for revive. And so they went and they found some of their friends who aren't very involved in church. And they, man, they piled them all in the car like the missionary that they are. And uh, they drove them to revive. And they probably walked in here at about 645, had a nice cup of coffee, sat down, were speaking of spiritual things with each other. That's the person who happens to life. But then there's the person who life happens to them. And their morning routine looked a little different. See, they woke up not to an alarm clock, but to an internal clock that was like, oh no, it is very late. I am running way behind. And so they roll out of bed and the birds aren't chirping. They make their way to the bathroom and there's not a toothbrush with toothpaste on it. So they grab the toothbrush, they get the toothpaste, they squirt it on the toothbrush, but they miss because they're in such a rush. It falls in the sink. They just scoop it out of the sink with the toothbrush and get right to business. (laughs) Then they make their way while they're brushing their teeth into their closet, right? And they're looking around as they're brushing their teeth. They're like, what am I going to wear today? Okay, too many options. There's what I wore yesterday. Right on the ground. I can just grab this, throw that on. So they're wearing what they wore yesterday. They run downstairs. They go, well, there's no time for like for me to cook breakfast. I'll just grab some bread out of it. I'll pretend it's toast on my ride into school. So here they come drifting into the parking lot on two wheels. They make their way into class. They pass the person who they happen to life. They're just sitting there studying. Uh, They're sitting there taking their pop quiz because it's five minutes after class has already started. They then learn that there's a pop quiz that day. They go, I have not seen a single one of these words, like vocabulary, like I know none of this. So they try to draw the coolest picture ever on their Scantron. Like, what can I make out of this? And so they draw this picture on their Scantron, and that continues for a few more classes, and they they make it to lunchtime. And this person, they did not pack lunch. Uh, They did not think about it. They didn't have time to think about it. So they get on their phone, and they go and download every fast food app that exists, and they try to see what the most inexpensive lunch that they could scrounge up is. And so they're on McDonald's and Wendy's and all these things. They finally find a good budget meal that they can have. So they run to the fast food restaurant. They get their food. And, and you know, the day progresses. And they realize, oh, my goodness, it's Thursday. It's Revive. I got to get there. And so they, they hop in the car. They're probably, yep, they're coming right now. And they will be in here at some point during the middle of the service. So if somebody walks in. While we're preaching, I'm not even going to say that because then we're going to start laughing at them. You guys see kind of the difference there? Now, that's very exaggerated, uh, but here is what we're going to be talking about tonight. People who have a faith that goes beyond belief, they live on mission for the king. They live on mission for the king. These people are not like uh, the people we just talked about. They are not like the people who life happens to them. They're not just like a plastic bag drifting through the wind. Whatever happens to them happens, and they're just rolling with the punches. They're not like that. These people have a purpose, and they they have incredible clarity. Now, when we're talking tonight about a life that is lived on mission for the king, please don't misunderstand me. What I don't mean is that we're talking about like God has given you a specific calling, 
Like he is calling you to the continent of Africa and a very specific country and a very specific village. And he has called you to build orphanages and to dig wells. And, you know, all like that's not what we're talking about. Maybe it's a part of what we're talking about. But tonight, when I talk about how someone who goes, has a faith that goes beyond belief, how they're on mission for the king, I'm really talking about just clarity when it comes to this life that you have been called to live, how it is that you or that God is going to use you to accomplish great things. That doesn't have to be this big specific goal. It can be broad. It can be pursuing Jesus. But people who live life on mission. There's clarity about their purpose, and that's what we're going to look at tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at the life of a man named Gideon to learn what it looks like to live on mission for the king. So we're going to look at this man named Gideon, and so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. And as you're turning to Judges chapter 6, I want to give you a little bit of context of the book of Judges, okay? So the book of Judges is at an interesting point in the history of the people of Israel. This book is one giant cycle. And the way that this cycle typically works, at this point, the people of Israel have made it to the promised land. They've made it to the land that God told him that they were going to end up in, that he was going to give them. And when they get there, the people pretty soon after learn, well, or they, they, they don't learn, they kind of make the decision for themselves, hey, we really don't need God anymore. So we're going to start to pursue false gods. We're going to start to, to have idols and, and worship uh, other gods, false gods. And when they do that, as it would, life always gets bad. And so then the people cry out. And so when the people cry out to God for help, God always would send a rescuer. And God would send that rescuer, and then for a time, things would get better. But then when things got better, the people would turn away from God again, and then the cycle continues, right? And so where we find ourselves in that cycle in this book of Judges is that the people have just cried out. They were going through a really difficult time. They're oppressed at this point in time. They are oppressed by an enemy, uh, the enemy territory of Midian, the Midianites oppress the people of Israel. And according to scripture, these people are bad news. Like the Bible refers to them in like verse five as locusts. Like anything that the Israelites plant and try to harvest, any food that they have, they swarm it like locusts. Like they're, they're there and then when, they, when they're gone, so is the food, so is everything that the Israelites used for resources. And they leave the land in absolute desolation. And so in this passage, The Israelites are crying out for help, and God sends that deliverer, that rescuer, in this person by the name of Gideon. So I want you to read with me in uh, in verse uh, in chapter six. uh, I'm going to pick up in verse eleven. What tonight I want to to share with you is this: I want to share with you three questions that you can ask yourself to determine whether or not you're living on mission for the King. Three questions you can ask yourself to determine whether or not you're living on mission for the king. So we're going to pick up in verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Asbezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us 
and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Let's stop right there. So, question for you. Have you ever, ha- have you ever had someone notice something about you, something in you, before you did? Like maybe you've, you've had someone who they notice some sort of gift that, that the Lord has placed inside of you, some talent, some skill, and they like see that in you and they call that out of you before you even recognize it. You ever been there? That's what's going on here. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and he refers to Gideon as mighty warrior. Now, the weird thing about that is that Gideon had at this point in his life, he had fought no battles and he had won no wars. And, and he then tells Gideon, this angel of the Lord, he tells him that he's being sent to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And, and Gideon almost laughs at the thought of that being true. The literal translation in Gideon's response to this angel of the Lord is he's like, excuse me? Like, it's literally like, pardon me? Like, there's no way that this can be true. And, and his, his like reasoning for that is he says, I am the least of the least. He says, of all of the people of Israel, Israel is divided up into these different tribes. He's like, my tribe is the weakest tribe. And my family is the weakest family in my tribe. And I'm the weakest one in my family. Like, I'm not your guy is basically what he's saying. And, and at this point is when you would expect God as the loving father that he is, This is when you would expect him to put his arm around Gideon and say, Gideon, you're a whole lot stronger than you realize. Like you are the man for the job. You can do this. You're you're strong enough. You're you're smart enough. Like don't doubt yourself. This is like you're made for this. But that's not at all what God does. I actually think it's it's kind of funny uh, because the response is basically uh, he's like, yeah, you're right. You are the least of the least. There's no, like, consolation, uh, no, like, you know, none of that. It was straight up, yeah, you don't think you can do it? You're probably right. But I will be with you. I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites and leave none alive. He says in this moment, Gideon, I am calling you to something. I am giving you a mission, a purpose. But before we get rolling, I just want to make it crystal clear that the only way you're going to accomplish this mission is if I am with you. See, when you live on mission for God, you know that life would look very different if God was not in it. Which brings me to the first question that you can ask yourself tonight to determine whether or not you're living on mission for the king. And that question is this. Would my life look different if God was not in it? Would my life look different if God was not in it? Y'all, this is a very convicting question. And I know because I asked myself this, this like entire week leading up to this. This is like, this question is super convicting, but it's a great question to ask if we want to get to the place that we're living on mission for the king, living with purpose and clarity. 
See, if we've learned anything about the story of Gideon up to this point, we see that God's mission in our life does not get accomplished without God. And so if God is with us, something should be different about us. So in other words, if, if God was not with us, something should look very different about our lives, right? So here's the question. If, if tomorrow, breaking news, like you, you see it on the news headlines, hey, turns out we made a mistake, the tomb's not empty, like, we've, we found the body of Jesus of Nazareth. Turns out he wasn't the Messiah. All these claims are false. It's not going to happen, but hypothetically, I'm just, I just, I just follow me here. If that news came out tomorrow, how would your life look different once you heard it? Like, would it? Would your life look different outside of maybe you have a few extra hours in your schedule on a Sunday or on a Thursday night? Like, would your life look different if God was not in it? See, I think we live in this Christian culture where lots of people say that they follow Jesus, but if something like that worked, I mean, it, it literally cannot and would not happen. But if it did, I think that we live in this time where a lot of people who say they follow Jesus would then live a life that looks the exact same as they did when they said they were following him. How would your life look different if God was not in it, would your thought life be any different? Would your relationship look any different? Would your, the plans for your future look any different? Would your friend groups look any different? Would the things you do, like your actions, would that look any different? I mean, this is a very, like, this is a probing question that you need to get to the bottom to because I'll just say, if your life would not be turned upside down if God was not in it, that's probably a pretty good sign that he's not working through you and you're not living on mission for him. And it might even be a pretty good sign that he's not in you in the first place. Like if God was not, uh, if, if, if he was not with you, would your life look different. If you're living on mission for the king, what must be true is that God is working through you. And if God is working through you, it will be evident, which means that if he were not in you, you would look a lot different. Let's keep on reading in verse 17. It says in Judges chapter 6 verse 17, he said to him, if I have now, this is Gideon talking, if I have now found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. That's just like a measurement. It's like 30-something pounds. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then, check out what Gideon does. 
Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Opfra, which belongs to the Esbezrites. So, I got a second question for you tonight. First question, will my life look any different if God is not in it? The second question that you can ask yourself if you want to determine whether or not you are living on mission for the king. Am I someone who knows true peace? Am I someone who knows true peace? What we just read here is is Gideon is not immediately filled with confidence when this angel comes to him and tells him, Hey, Gideon, you're going to single-handedly destroy the Midianite army. He's not immediately confident, and to be honest with you, he's pretty skeptical. And and so he asks for a sign from God. And so Gideon goes and he gets an offering. He places it before the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord touches it with his staff. And it ignites. It just catches catches fire. And then it's gone. And so is the angel of the Lord. Just like that. And what Gideon does is he immediately panics. Like he thinks that he's done. He thinks that he is going to die because he's seen the Lord face to face. And in his mind, that's what's going to happen. And he's probably just thinking that because he would have read at that time the account of of Moses in Exodus where God tells Moses, like, hey, no one can look at my face and die. So Gideon, he's worried. He thinks that he's going to die. And he hears a voice that comforts him. It's the voice of God. And, and And that voice says, peace, do not be afraid. And in that moment, in that moment, Gideon's mission, his purpose becomes clarified. He knows that all of a sudden, he knows this is God that's calling me to this thing. And he knows that God is going to use him to conquer this enemy army. And Gideon's response is to build an altar to worship the Lord. And he names that altar Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. That's one of the many names of God that we read about in the Old Testament. And this is the the one place where we find this name, Jehovah Shalom. When you live on mission for the king, your perspective on life looks a lot different because there is a peace that comes from having your purpose clarified. There's a peace that comes from having your purpose clarified. And that's what Gideon experienced here. Uh, You know, I I think when you get there, you can say, like, when you have that purpose that's been clarified by God, and again, this does not have to be like something big and huge, and I'm going to start a nonprofit, I'm going to be a missionary. This can simply be that you know the purpose that God has called you to now when you are a freshman or sophomore in college. It doesn't have to be anything grand, but you eventually get to that place. Once that purpose has been clarified, once you have uh, that, that done in your heart and in your mind, you can say, I know what I've been put here to do, so life makes a lot more sense. Because I don't have to wonder day to day what I'm going to do with my life. I don't have to worry about like what my future plans look like or, or why I'm here or whether or not I will make an impact because I have a purpose and I have a mission. Because I have peace. You know, peace looks a lot different than most people think. A lot of people might hear me say that and go, I don't know whether or not I have peace, but I I really like peace. But peace looks a lot different than most people think. A lot of people think that peace is just an absence of problems. 
They, they get like the, the, the idea of a truce confused with the idea of peace, and, and, and that's not the case. See, if we look at this passage, Gideon has peace, but there's problems all around him. Like that Midianite army is still oppressing the people of Israel. They're still taking their food. I mean, for like Gideon is literally, we find him threshing wheat in a wine press. I know we probably don't thresh wheat too much in this room, but you don't do it in a wine press, okay? He's hiding. That, that's what's going on. Uh, it, like there is, there's not an absence of problem. See, peace is not a change of circumstances. Peace is a reorientation of perspective. Peace is not a change of circumstances. It's a reorientation of your perspective. Gideon has peace even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because peace is not dependent on circumstances. Happiness is. That that might be what you're getting confused with is peace and happiness. Happiness is tied to what happens. Peace is not. See, when you have clarity as to what God has called you to... Your circumstances, they might take your happiness, but they won't take your peace because peace is not tied to circumstances. So you might be like walking down this road of incredible purpose and clarity to what God has called you to. And even though you might be faced with difficulties, like obstacles that get in your way that try to hinder you from what God's been calling you to do, it like you can still have incredible peace. It might take your happiness. It might distract you, but you still have the peace that surpasses all understanding. Do you know true peace? When you have clarity, that's when you get that. Some of you might say, well, I don't, I don't think that I have that peace because I don't feel like I, I have that mission yet. I don't feel like God's been very clear as to what he's calling me to, what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't have that purpose. I don't know what God wants to use me to accomplish. And it might be even more frustrating because in that moment you're going, and like, I feel like I'm doing all the things I should be doing, yet I still don't have that. I'm reading my Bible, I'm spending time in prayer, I'm surrounded by Christian community in a small group, but I don't feel like, like I've been crying out to God, God, would you show me what you want to use me to accomplish, but I'm getting nowhere, and what I'm feeling, it, it does not feel like peace. Has anybody ever been there? Because I, I have, like genuinely, when I, when I was a freshman in college, on the back end of my, my freshman year, I, I was there, and I'm, I'm so frustrated Because I did not know what God wanted to accomplish, what God wanted to use me for in my life. I felt like he was probably calling me into some sort of ministry, but I I had no clue what that might be. Like I had no clue what that might look like. And for you, maybe it's not ministry. Maybe it's some sort of a a work for, like a a field that you're getting called into. You don't know what it looks like. And, but for me, it was like, Lord, I, I feel like you're calling me into ministry, but I like, it is so frustrating. It is the opposite of peace what I'm going through. And I remember it was the, um, it was the first summer that I worked at a summer camp that I, I thought I was going into this thinking, like, Lord, you're going to use this to give me clarity. Like, on the heels of this, I'll know what it is that you're calling me to do. And, and y'all, legitimately, I went through that, that, that season of, of summer camp three months, and it was like spiritual steroids. That's why I thought like, yes, Lord, you're going to use this to, to clarify this in my heart. I was more confused on the back end than I, than I was going into it. 
And I'm just like so frustrated because I'm like, God, this is not like this is not enjoyable. It, it was anything but peace. But I felt like on the heels of that, I felt like I finally got to this place where, where I felt like the Lord said to me, if you make your purpose, like you want this big and, and, and grand plan for your life, you want this purpose. But if you will make your purpose just to know me. And be content with that. And I'll show you what's next. Like I'll show you what the next steps are. But you're, you're looking to the finish line. And we haven't even crossed the starting line. Like you want to see to the end of the road. I, I think that, that is such. That's not like even something from my brain either. Like I, I, that was not something that came from here. Like this is a biblical principle. The, um, the book of Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, who at that time was the wisest man to have ever lived. And, and Solomon spends this book of Ecclesiastes like evaluating all of life, trying to figure out what, what is true, what is the true meaning of life. And the last verse in the entire book of Proverbs, he gives his summary as to what that is. And he writes this. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty, the whole mission of man. If you're in a place where you feel like you don't have peace because you don't know what God is calling you to, if you will make it your mission, your duty to fear God and keep his commandments, and you, you are content with that, you're going to get to the place that God is going to reveal to you what's next. But why would he reveal it if you're not even content with him? That's where we have to get. So in the here and now, if you want peace, then you need clarity of mission. You, you want God to clarify, Lord, what are you calling me to? But, but if you don't have that, make your mission now to glorify him. To make much of him. Flip to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. I want to I read a few verses in chapter 7. At this point, uh, Gideon is marching towards the, the Midianite army. It says, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And, when the, camp, or, and the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, uh, likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent. But he retained the 300 men. 
and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. There's one final question that I want you guys to ask yourselves tonight if we're trying to determine whether or not you are living on mission for the king. And this final question is this. Is Jesus the center of your story? Is Jesus the center of your story? You know, we have some ROTC guys in here. If you're an ROTC guy or girl, if you're in the core in any way, would you slip your hand up into the air so we can see who you are? So these are the people who we can rely on as experts in this, in this matter here, okay? We don't have as many as I thought, but that's still, we can, we can rely on them. So, here's what they know. And you guys probably know this too, but I, I know they know this. Numbers matter. In a fight, numbers are like a big deal, right? Like, that's just pretty logical. You got more people than the enemy, your odds are way better for winning this war. And Gideon knew that, which is why Gideon gets this massive army together, 32,000 people to march against the Midianites. I mean, Gideon, he, uh, he, he knew that this was the case. And so he says, we're, if we don't have anything else, we're going to have the numbers. And so Gideon, he takes these men, he starts marching towards the army of Midian. But the thing that you'll learn about God, if you really dive into the Old Testament, and and you'll see this uh, too in your own life, is that God loves to stack the odds against himself. And, And we see this throughout this entire story, that God loves to stack the odds against himself. That's why he calls on this man Gideon, the, the last person that anyone would have chosen. That's why he calls him to be the one that marches towards Midian. This guy that, remember, he was the least of the least. And, and so Gideon gets this huge army together and God goes, no, 32,000, too many people. Tell you what, why don't we ask everyone who's afraid to just leave? And there goes 22,000 people right there. But God's like, okay, 10,000, that's still way too much. So what I want you to do is I want you to uh, go down to this this stream, this area where you can drink water. And if people uh, get down on their hands and knees and lap the water like a dog, I want you to send them home. But if if people pick the water up with their hands and they, they drink from it like this, then I want you to keep them. And as the story goes, there were 300 people that remained in this army. 300 people. See, God loves to stack the odds against himself. So much so that he would send an army of 300 people to try to uh, take out an enemy army in an enemy territory. So the reason that God does this, we, we read, is that God's basically saying, I don't want Israel saying, look how strong we are. I want Israel looking at me and saying, look how strong he is. That's what this is all about. Which is why that third question that I'm, that I'm asking you, if you're someone who says you live on mission for the king, okay, is Jesus the center of your story? Because when God gives purpose, when God gives a mission, he will make sure that he is at the center of that mission, that purpose that he has called you to. A simple indicator of whether or not you are living on mission for the king is to ask, who is the center of your story? Is your ultimate ambition... To make much of you or to make much of God? See, when you're on mission for yourself, your ambition is to make much of you. But when you're on mission for the king, 
you're just a vessel. You're just clay in the hands of a potter. Your only aim is to be used by God, not to make much of you, but to make much of Him. That, that is what it looks like to be on mission for the king. And, and see, the thing that I think is so dangerous is that a lot of people are just on mission for themselves. Like their college degree, it's all about them. It's all about, man, how big of a salary can I get? How big of a house can I get? How, like, I just want the best benefits that I can get from a job. I, I just want that lifestyle. Their, their college degree is nothing more than that. Same thing with, with their relationships, right? Their, their relationships with a boy or a girl is all about them. It's all about what I can get out of that other person. You know, you can even get this way with church. Church can be all about you. Like, like you go because you're encouraged when you leave. You feel good about yourself. You like the people that are there. Not only church, but, but your prayer life can be all about you. It, when, when you get to that posture, not of like, Lord, what do you want for my life? Bring my will into alignment with yours. But instead, you're like, Lord, give me, give me, give me. I, I just want everything that you, can, that you can give me. And all I'm going to do is ask you for more. Reading your Bible can be all about you. It, it really can. I mean, it can be so easy to make reading your Bible all about you. Like, it, it makes you feel better about yourself. Maybe it makes you feel better about what you did the night before. And so you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to spend some time in God's word, like check that box. Now I'm feeling a little bit better. Like it's so easy to live on mission for yourself. But if you're, if you're on mission for the king, your ambition is not to make much of you. It's to make much of your king. And so when you live on mission for the king, your life is no longer about you, but everything you do is to point to Jesus and say, look how strong he is. Look how strong he is. He could take someone as messed up as me and use me to accomplish incredible things for his purpose and his glory. And the way that you can figure out for yourself, well, is Jesus the center of my story, is to go, well, what does my life look like? All those things that we just mentioned, right? Your college degree. It, all of a sudden, that's not just something that exists to get you a huge salary, a nice house, and a good job one day. It's, it's a tool that you can use to make much of Jesus. Like, now, it's, it's not just something that earns you all those things, but now when you go to sit in class, you're there to be a light in a dark place. To re reorientation of your thinking. Is Jesus the center of your story? Same thing with your job, right? Your job's not, no longer, if Jesus is the center of your story, your job's not just something that you use to earn money. All of a sudden, it's a mission field. All of a sudden, it's a platform you have to make Jesus famous. And that goes for every single thing that you do. If Jesus is at the center of your story, your life looks entirely different. When you're in line at the grocery store, when you go to the gym, like no matter what it is that you do, when you're, when you're getting gas, when you're walking down the hallway to class, like every bit of your life is meant to bring glory and honor to him. Is Jesus the center of your story? It reminds me of that verse in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, where Paul writes, whatever you do, in word or deed, everything, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. Is Jesus the center of your story? Or is your ambition to make much of you? If, if, you're, if you seek that clarity that comes from a, a mission, like being living your life, being on mission for the king, purpose and, and clarity, if you want that, you've got to be okay to step back and to make much of Jesus, to die to yourself and to make much of him. I want to invite the, the band up front. You know, we've been talking about a, a lot over these past three weeks about a faith that goes beyond believing in God. We said that a faith that goes beyond belief is hungry for the things of God. A faith that goes beyond belief looks different than the world. And finally, a faith that goes beyond belief, it looks like living on mission for the king. And you might hear that like over these past three weeks, and you might have been one of those people who you're like, and I, I totally thought that I could just believe in Jesus and be good. And, and all of this is news to me. And to be honest with you, like I'm not super excited about it because it feels like a lot. If you feel like following Jesus is like, after hearing all this stuff, if you feel like it's a whole lot more than you bargained for, like maybe you were in that place where you were just kind of hoping for, for some hell insurance. Like, man, I just want to make sure that I go to heaven when I die. And, and now you're going, what, like, what have I done? This is way more than I wanted to get into. I want to comfort you with this. I want you to know that following Jesus is not easy. But neither is one weak guy and an army of 299 other people taking out an enemy territory. An enemy army. I want to finish reading this story together. Let's pick up in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, He said to them, this is Gideon now, this is the guy that was a coward. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. He says, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in the hands. Then the three companies blew the, trump the trumpets and uh, broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth. I'm sorry, I'm not going to say that in church. Towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel and Taboth. Some great places there. Here's the moral of the story. Gideon wins. Like, like this guy was called to do something that felt way too big for him. And he accomplishes it. But he doesn't do it by himself. He accomplishes it through the Lord working in and through him. And so tonight, maybe if you're somebody who, like we were just talking about, you're like, I did not realize that following Jesus was so much of a commitment. It feels like it's going to be really difficult, like it's going to be an uphill battle. Like I'm called to go to a place like this 
and live like this? That is really difficult. Well, so is marching on an army, uh, on an enemy army with a, with a crew of 300 guys. But with Jesus, anything is possible. And that's the invitation that is on the table tonight for you. See, if you, if you know Jesus, you have everything that you need to live the life that he calls you to live and to accomplish the mission that he's called you to accomplish. And so the response, the invitation tonight is this. If you know Jesus and you're someone who, man, you feel like you lack that purpose, that clarity of what it looks like to live on mission for him. Tonight, I want to, we're, we're about to sing together. We're about to respond as the Lord leads us. But I want to invite you to use this song as a time to, to pray and ask God to give you that sense of direction in your life. And look, until he gives you that answer, just like we talked about, your mission and your purpose now is to know Jesus and make him known and then be okay with the rest. Be content with that and then let him lead you on to the next step. And if you don't know Jesus tonight, Following him is the greatest decision that you can ever make. I mean, it, it really, really is that you, we talk about that purpose and that clarity. Like, y'all, I cannot tell you how many times that, that when I'm praying, I thank the Lord. Like, God, thank you so much that, like, you call me to a life with, with, with purpose that makes sense. You, you get what I mean by that? Like, as followers of Jesus, we're not just like the rest of the world who, I mean, ultimately are like those people we talked about in the beginning who like, man, they're just taking life as it happens. But we've been given this purpose, this direction from God that sets us on mission for him. And so tonight, if you don't know Jesus, on the other side of knowing him is peace that, that you can only know through following him. So Bow your heads and, and close your eyes. I want to pray for us, and uh, I want you to respond as the Lord leads you. God, we love you. And Lord, we ask that tonight you would give us clarity on this mission that, that you're calling us to. That God, you would give us a purpose. And, and Lord, that doesn't have to be anything crazy and big, and, and we don't have to know the finish line. But God, we pray that you would help us to cross the starting line. Lord, I ask that tonight you would do a work in hearts, that you would speak directly to us, and God, that we would leave here changed. Pray, God, that if there is anybody tonight that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that tonight they would not leave without making that decision for themselves. God, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.